Addiction research, are the outcomes being studied relevant to actual treatment goals? I'm Dr. Stu Gitlow. You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. With me is Dr. Howard Wetzman, a board member of the American Society of Addiction Medicine and Chief Medical Officer of Townsend Recovery. He's joining us today from New Orleans. Thanks very much for being with us, Dr. Wetzman. Thanks for having me. Addicts entering treatment for the first time have a variety of functional difficulties due to their substance use. What is it that we're treating? Is it the substance use, the functional difficulties, or is it something else? Well, when I started, I treated the substance use. And when you think about how our field defines relapse, it's pretty much going back to using substances. And so our field recognizes that it's pretty much the use of the substance. However, I found that really to be not the best way to look at it. And I found more success in understanding that patients had symptoms before their substance use, that their substance use relieved those symptoms, and that just stopping their substance use isn't enough. It's been more helpful to actually relieve the symptoms and watch the substance abuse go away. So the primary approach would be to treat the functional difficulties once the substance use has been terminated. Right. And I know that sounds dangerously like addiction is actually a secondary illness. And I want to make sure that everybody understands that's not what I mean. Because the neurobiology and symptoms that I'm talking about really are symptoms of addiction, not symptoms of some other illness. Now, in hypertension, we look for a certain pair of numbers as a target. And in chronic pain, we look for a reduction of subjective experience of pain. What is it that we're looking for as our target outcome with addiction? Well, I use that same kind of 1 through 10 pain scale. It's reversed, though. I say 10 is how you feel when you're not well, and 1 is completely well. And I'll take the patients through a range of midbrain reward system dysfunction symptoms, low motivation, irritability, inability to feel comfortable in your own skin, inability to feel like you fit in or can attach with others, unable to feel as much pleasure as other people seem to feel. And if you look at those symptoms, you can treat the people and actually get them to stop using drugs with part of a program, or maybe they'll just choose to use less. But our goal, of course, is to stop use. So very interesting. The target outcome you spoke of is not the substance use decline itself. The substance use decline is something that you know will follow when your target has been reached. Right. And the reason substance not use is important and why abstinence really is important to me is that we know that this disease is progressive, that we're going to lose midbrain dopamine tone as we age at about 1% a year. And so people with this illness are going to be getting worse over time. And we know they get worse faster if they continue to use. So even, for instance, in cocaine addicts and alcoholics that we treat, we'll encourage them not to smoke. And we'll take their treatment not just to the point where they don't want to use cocaine, but to the point where they feel comfortable not smoking. Now, you spoke about this 1% per year midbrain dopamine tone being lost. What would a non-addict notice from that? Well, you remember that movie, Grumpy Old Men? Yes. That's where we're all going. And the grumpiness would be a result of the decreased dopamine tone. Right. When you think of those symptoms, it's dopamine is kind of the I have enough chemical. And when you don't have enough dopamine, you don't have enough of anything. 
not enough time, not enough space, not enough money, and everybody wants your last whatever it is you don't have enough of, and you get pretty irritable. And what would an addict notice by losing this 1% per year? Well, they'd be noticing that their disease is getting worse, that the drugs they used to previously feel better don't work to feel better anymore, and that they need to use bigger, more, or different combinations of drugs. So what would be the traditional treatment for this, and how does medical treatment differ from that if it does at all? Well, the, the traditional treatment is first tell people to stop using drugs, then hope their brain clears enough to learn how not to use drugs in a psychosocial treatment. We have pretty abysmal outcomes in this field doing that. We have huge first two-week attrition rates that really people don't talk about. The only groups you hear that talked about in are the doctors and the pilots where someone's holding their license over their head and they don't have a high attrition rate. But when we institute medical treatment, for instance, in our IOP, there's a big difference between the outcomes in people who are medically managed and not. And it's almost completely explained by the early attrition of the non-medically managed patients. And so what you're stating is that medical oversight or medical treatment is a necessity in this illness? I think so. It's a medical illness just like anything else. And you know, just like if a diabetic patient is taking insulin and then should be having diet and exercise as well, we wouldn't send a diabetic patient to a nutritionist first to get diet and exercise. We'd want to get their diabetes under control first. And the same is with addiction. We need medical treatment to get the disease under control, and then we can do the psychosocial treatment. When you look at what those midbrain symptoms are, you really can't get much out of a group if you're irritable, can't remember things, can't pay attention, can't attach to others, don't enjoy anything, which is one of the reasons that AA and psychosocial treatment both have such huge attrition rates. So when would proper treatment end? And I suspect you won't tell me that being allowed six visits would be a, a reasonable treatment protocol? Well, this is a chronic disease. And just like diabetes, I mean, we may have people who, after a course of psychosocial treatment, can be withdrawn from the medication that stabilized them. We also have people who, when we attempt to remove them from the stabilizing medicine, lose their stability. And when you think of a catastrophic outcome from reigniting active addiction, the risk-benefit of getting off medicines that keep you stable just is ludicrous. So there are people who are going to be needing treatment for the rest of their lives. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Stu Gitlow. We're speaking today with Dr. Howard Wetzman, a board member from the American Society of Addiction Medicine. It sounds like we need to talk about research. Now, let's say hypothetically a new modality of treatment is being tested. What would you like to see as the outcome being sought with this new research? Well, I guess I'd want to change the paradigm first. I mean, one of our problems with outcome is that we don't have a good definition of this disease. This disease is currently defined as several diseases, alcohol dependence, cocaine dependence, opiate dependence, etc. In addition to sexual disorder not otherwise specified and compulsive gambling, pathological gambling. So... The FDA and people who fund research are pretty much set up to require researchers to look at a diagnosis. So if you're going to study if a drug is helpful in patients, you have to study if that drug is helpful in 
alcohol-dependent patients or cocaine-dependent patients. When in fact, the medical treatment, the best medical treatment that I've found is that done by an informed clinician who actually understands the neurobiology of the disease. And very often, I'll need to use more than one medicine in a specific sequence. And that's just not taken into account in our ongoing research. So research, when we're looking in the journals to read about what we should be doing to treat patients with alcoholism or cocaine dependence, has various inclusion criteria, you would change those? Well, none of my patients have exclusion criteria. They all walk in the door, and I don't get to say, nope, sorry, I can't treat you. And, you know, one of the things is they say on alcoholism research, for instance, that you can't be using other drugs. Well, they don't ask, are you compulsively gambling? Are you compulsively overeating? Are you compulsively engaging in sexual behavior? Now, when we look at the midbrain and the activity from, from those behaviors, they don't look different from taking drugs. And so we really don't know what that means. And I think until we get a better definition of the disease and of its neurobiology, we're not ever going to see any research that's going to be really helpful clinically. Now, some research has also addressed the issue of abstinence-based models versus harm reduction models. How would you differentiate those two models? Well, that's a funny word, this abstinence-based. And I often have that word thrown in my face when I'm talking to somebody about treating an opiate-dependent person with Suboxone, buprenorphine. They'll say, oh, well, I'm from an abstinence-based model. We have an abstinence-based treatment program. And I'll say, well, do you allow smoking? Yes, yes, we do. Well, that's not abstinence-based. When my patient is taking buprenorphine as prescribed, he's not popping his dopamine in his midbrain whenever he chooses. And that's more sober than being able to light up and get a dopamine hit whenever you want. And so I think we really need to take the broader view of what the neurobiology is and let go of some of our older ideas about abstinence and harm reduction. I don't think these terms are going to be as meaningful moving forward as we think they've been in the past. So does current research favor one of these approaches, or is there some middle ground? Well, I think there's probably got to be a middle ground. I mean, and, and I think they ask different questions. If you look from the standpoint of social cost, I think it's pretty clear that harm reduction is important. If you look at the goal of the happiness of the, of the individual, I think the idea of harm reduction, which is in just decreasing use, may in fact decrease the slide down in addiction, but it's still going to go down faster than it would without using. I think if we looked at this from the standpoint of uh, physical illness that was chronic and progressive, like diabetes, and said, well, what's more effective, actual treatment to control the diabetes and keeping people in control or just getting them down into the 150s? And I think we have two different views here. There are different outcomes that we would look at there, and one of them is social cost, and the other is the cost of the individual. So are you comfortable with the literature when people study whether or not a given drug results in a reduction of the percent of days on which somebody uses heavily? I'm not sure that's a clinically important thing. I think it's perhaps an important social piece of literature. If you could put such a drug in the water supply and decrease the number of drinking days in the population and the number of days or the number of drinks per drinking day, you'd pretty clearly see a decrease in suicides, homicides, violent acts of all kinds, crime. And there would be social outcomes. But is the alcoholic 
who is now just not drinking as much, any less active in his alcoholism? No, I don't think so. He still has a chronic progressive disease that's going untreated and is continuing to progress. Do you think we're going in the right direction? What's the future for addiction treatment? No, I think we're stuck on DSM. And DSM was written before the neurobiological understanding of this disease came about. DSM-4 is pretty much the same as DSM-3, and that was written in 1982. So we're still going on a 1982 paradigm, and we've got 21st century data. We really need a new paradigm, or we're not going to make sense of this field going forward. Well, my thanks, Howard. Howard Wetzman, our guest from Townsend Recovery, and also a new author of the textbook QAA, Questions and Answers on Addiction. I'm Dr. Stu Gitlow. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions through our website at reachmd.com, which now features our entire medical show library in on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.